Chapter 20 from Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, Chapter 20 on the morning of February 23, the whole country was surprised at the telegraphic announcement, coupled with diverse and generally very foggy explanations, that the president-elect, after his long and almost triumphal journey in the utmost publicity and with well-nigh universal greetings of goodwill, had suddenly abandoned his announced program and made a quick and secret night journey through Baltimore to the federal capital. Public opinion at the time and for years afterwards was puzzled by the event and the utmost contrariety of comment ranging from the highest praise to the severest detraction which caricature, ridicule, and denunciation could express was long current. In the course of time, the narratives of the principal actors in the affair have been published and a sufficient statement of the facts and motives involved may at length be made. The newspaper stated without any prompting or suggestion from Mr. Lincoln that an extensive plot to assassinate him on his expected trip through Baltimore about midday of Saturday had been discovered, which plot, the earlier and unknown passage on Friday night, disconcerted and prevented. This theory has neither been proved nor disproved by the lapse of time. Mr. Lincoln did not entertain it in this form, nor base his course upon it. But subsequent events did clearly demonstrate the possibility and probability of attempted personal violence from the fanatical impulse of individuals or the sudden anger of a mob, and confirmed the propriety of his decision. The threats of secession, revolution, plots to seize Washington, to burn the public buildings, to prevent the count of electoral votes and the inauguration of the new president, which had for six weeks filled the newspapers of the country, caused much uneasiness about the personal safety of Mr. Lincoln, particularly among the railroad officials over whose lines he was making his journey and to no one of them so much as to Mr. S. M. Felton, the president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railway, whose line formed the connecting link from the north to the south, from a free to a slave state, from the region of absolute loyalty to the territory of quasi-rebellion. Independently of politics, the city of Baltimore at that time bore an unenviable reputation as containing a dangerous and disorderly element. Her roughs had a degree of newspaper notoriety by no means agreeable to quiet and non-combative strangers. But Baltimore and other portions of Maryland were also profoundly moved by the incipient rebellion. 
Governor Hicks had been plied with persuasion, protest, and even threats of personal violence to induce him to convene the legislature of that State so that secession might begin under a legal pretext. The investigation of the Select Committee of Five, though it found no organized plot to seize the capital of the nation, gave abundant traces of secession conspiracy of various degrees, especially of half-formed military companies organizing to prevent northern troops from passing through Baltimore to Washington or other points in the South. As part and parcel of this scheme, the railroads were to be destroyed and the bridges burned. The events of April, as they actually occurred, had already been planned, informally at least, in January. Aside from patriotism, the duty of protecting the tracks and bridges of the railroad of which he was president induced Mr. Felton to call to his aid Mr. Allen Pinkerton, chief of a Chicago detective agency whom he had employed on an important matter before. He was a man of great skill and resources, writes Mr. Felton. I furnished him with a few hints and at once set him on the track with eight assistants. There were then drilling upon the line of the railroad some three military organizations professedly for home defense, pretending to be union men, and in one or two instances tendering their services to the railroad in case of trouble. Their propositions were duly considered, but the defense of the road was never entrusted to their tender mercies. The first thing done was to enlist a volunteer in each of these military companies. They pretended to come from New Orleans and Mobile, and did not appear to be wanting in sympathy for the South. They were furnished with uniforms at the expense of the road, and drilled as often as their associates in arms, became initiated into all the secrets of the organization, and reported every day or two to their chief, who immediately reported to me the designs and plans of these military companies. One of these organizations was loyal, but the other two were disloyal, and fully in the plot to destroy the bridges and march to Washington to wrest it from the hands of the legally constituted authorities. Every nook and corner of the road and its vicinity was explored by the chief and his detectives, and the secret working of secession and treason laid bare and brought to light. Societies were joined in Baltimore, and various modes known to and practiced only by detectives were resorted to to win the confidence of the conspirators and get into their secrets. The plan worked well, and the midnight plottings and daily consultations of the conspirators were treasured up as a guide to our future plans for thwarting them. It was made as certain as strong circumstantial and positive evidence could make it that there was a plot to burn the bridges and destroy the road and murder Mr. Lincoln on his way to Washington if it turned out that he went there before troops were called. If troops were first called, then the bridges were to be destroyed and Washington cut off and taken possession of by the South. I at once organized and armed a force of about 200 men whom I distributed along the line between the Susquehanna and Baltimore, 
principally at the bridges. These men were drilled secretly and regularly by drill masters, and were apparently employed in whitewashing the bridges, putting on some six or seven coats of whitewash, saturated with salt and alum, to make the outside of the bridges as nearly fireproof as possible. This whitewashing, so extensive in its application, became the nine days' wonder of the neighborhood. Thus the bridges were strongly guarded, and a train was arranged so as to concentrate all the forces at one point in case of trouble. The program of Mr. Lincoln was changed, and it was decided by him that he would go to Harrisburg from Philadelphia, and thence over the northern central road by, by day to Baltimore, and thence to Washington. We were then informed by our detective that the attention of the conspirators was turned from our road to the northern central, and that they would be there awaiting the coming of Mr. Lincoln. It appeared from the reports of Pinkerton's detectives that among the more suspicious indications were the very free and threatening expressions of a man named Farandini, an Italian, sometime a barber at Barnum's Hotel in Baltimore, but who had become captain of one of the military companies organized in the city to promote secession. Farandini's talk may not have been conclusive proof of a conspiracy, but it showed his own intent to commit assassination and conveyed the inference of a plot. Coupled with the fact that the Baltimore air was full of similar threats, it established the probability of a mob and a riot. Add to this Farandini's testimony, February 5, 1861, that he was then drilling a company, 15 members of constitutional guards in Baltimore, formed for the express purpose to prevent northern volunteer companies from passing through the state of Maryland to come here, Washington, to help the United States troops or anybody else to invade the South in any shape whatever. Also that another corps called the National Volunteers had formed to protect their state and began drilling the previous Saturday. Also that he had heard that the Minutemen have 15 companies in Baltimore, and we have the direct evidence of extensive organization and strong presumption of the uses to which it could be turned. Then, if we remember that riot, murder, and bridge burning actually took place in Baltimore two months later, in exact accordance with the plans and ideas formulated, both in the loose talk and the solemn testimony by Ferrandini and others, we are unavoidably driven to the conclusion that Mr. Felton, General Scott, Governor Hicks, and others had abundant cause for the very serious apprehensions under which they acted. N. B. Judd, a resident of Chicago of peculiar prominence in Illinois politics and a personal friend of Lincoln, was perhaps the most active and influential member of the suite of the president-elect. Pinkerton, the detective, knew Judd personally, and as the presidential party approached, notified him by letter at Buffalo and by special messenger at New York of the investigations he was making in Baltimore. Judd as yet said nothing of the matter to anyone. When the party arrived in Philadelphia, however, he was instantly called to a conference with Mr. Felton and the detective. 
Pinkerton laid his reports before the two, and after an hour's examination both were convinced that the proofs of the plot to assassinate the President-elect were as serious and important as in the nature of things such evidence can ever be. He immediately took Pinkerton with him to Mr. Lincoln's room at the Continental Hotel, to whom the whole story was repeated, and where Judd advised that in the opinion both of Mr. Felton and himself, Mr. Lincoln's safety required him to proceed that same evening on the 11 o'clock train. If you follow the course suggested, continued Judd, you will necessarily be subjected to the scoffs and sneers of your enemies and the disapproval of your friends who cannot be made to believe in the existence of so desperate a plot. Mr. Lincoln replied that he appreciated these suggestions, but that he could stand anything that was necessary. Then rising from his seat, he said, I cannot go tonight. I have promised to raise the flag over Independence Hall tomorrow morning and to visit the legislature at Harrisburg. Beyond that, I have no engagements. Hitherto, all Lincoln's movements have been made under the invitation, arrangement, direction, and responsibility of committees of legislatures, governors of states, and municipal authorities of towns and cities. No such call or greeting, however, had come from Maryland. No resolutions of welcome from her legislature, no invitation from her governor, no municipal committee from Baltimore. The sole proffers of friendship and hospitality from the Commonwealth came from two citizens in their private capacity, Mr. Jiddings, president of the Northern Central Railroad, who tendered a dinner to Mr. Lincoln and his family, and Mr. Coleman of the Utah House, who extended a similar invitation to the president-elect and his suite. Appreciating fully these acts of personal courtesy, Mr. Lincoln yet felt that there was no evidence before him that the official authority of the city would be exercised to restrain the unruly elements which would on such an occasion densely pack the streets of Baltimore. During their ten days' experience on the journey thus far, both he and his suite had had abundant evidence as to how completely exposed and perfectly helpless every individual of the party, and especially Mr. Lincoln, was at times, even amid the friendliest feeling and the kindest attention. He had been almost crushed in the corridor of the State House at Columbus. Arriving after dark in the Pittsburgh depot, a stampede of the horses of a small cavalry escort had seriously endangered his carriage and its occupants. At Buffalo, Major Hunter of his suite had his arm broken by a sudden rush of the crowd. If with all the goodwill and precautions of police and military, such perils were unavoidable in friendly cities, what might happen where authorities were indifferent? where municipal control and public order were lax, and where prejudice, hostility, and smoldering insurrection animated the masses of people surging about the carriages of an unprotected street procession. Yet with all these considerations, Mr. Lincoln could not entirely convince himself that a deliberate plot to murder him was in existence. 
I made arrangements, however, with Mr. Judd for my return to Philadelphia the next night if I should be convinced that there was danger in going through Baltimore. I told him that if I should meet at Harrisburg, as I had at other places, a delegation to go with me to Baltimore, I should feel safe and go on. Mr. Judd devoted the remainder of the afternoon and nearly the whole of the night of February 21 to the discussion and perfection of arrangements for a night journey through Baltimore as suggested by himself and Mr. Felton and as conditionally accepted by the President-elect. Only four persons joined in this discussion, Mr. Judd, Mr. Pinkerton, Mr. Franciscus, general manager of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and Mr. Henry Sanford, representing Colonel E. S. Sanford, president of the American Telegraph Company. At four o'clock a.m., the party separated, having agreed on the following plan. That after the reception at Harrisburg, a special train consisting of a baggage car and one passenger car starting at 6 p.m. should convey Mr. Lincoln and one companion back to Philadelphia, the track between the two cities to be kept clear of everything. That Mr. Felton at Philadelphia should detain the 11 o'clock p.m. Baltimore train until the arrival of the special train from Harrisburg that Pinkerton should have a carriage ready in which to proceed through Philadelphia from one depot to the other, that an employee of his should engage berths in the sleeping car of the Baltimore train, that Mr. Sanford should so disconnect the wires as to make any telegraphing between the several points within certain hours impossible, and that Mr. Lincoln should have for his single escort and companion Ward H. Lehman of his suite, a devoted personal friend from Illinois, young, active, and of almost Herculean frame and strength. At six o'clock on the morning of February 22, the appointed flag-raising by the President-elect over Independence Hall in Philadelphia was duly celebrated. And on the trip to Harrisburg, which followed as soon as possible, Mr. Judd communicated the details of his plan to Mr. Lincoln. Before leaving Philadelphia, Lincoln had received at the Continental Hotel the visit of Frederick W. Seward, who came as a special messenger from his father in Washington to place the following correspondence in his hands. Seward to Lincoln Washington, February 21, 1861. My dear sir, my son goes express to you. He will show you a report made by our detective to General Scott and by him communicated to me this morning. I deem it so important as to dispatch my son to meet you wherever he may find you. I concur with General Scott in thinking it best for you to reconsider your arrangement. No one here but General Scott, myself, and the bearer is aware of this communication. I should have gone with it myself, but for the peculiar sensitiveness about my attendance at the Senate at this crisis. Very truly yours, William H. Seward. General Scott to Seward, February 21, 1861. My dear sir, please receive my friend, Colonel Stone chief of General Waitman's staff and a distinguished young officer with me in Mexico. He has an important communication to make. Yours truly, Winfield Scott. 
Colonel Stone's Report, February 21, 1861. A New York detective officer who has been on duty in Baltimore for three weeks past reports this morning that there is serious danger of violence and the assassination of Mr. Lincoln in his passage through that city should the time of that passage be known. He states that there are banded rowdies holding secret meetings and that he has heard threats of mobbing and violence and has himself heard men declare that if Mr. Lincoln was to be assassinated, they would like to be the men. He states further that it is only within the past few days that he has considered there was any danger, but now he deems it imminent. He deems the danger one which the authorities and people in Baltimore cannot guard against. All risk might be easily avoided by a change in the traveling arrangements, which would bring Mr. Lincoln and a portion of his party through Baltimore by a night train without previous notice. Here was a new and most serious additional warning. The investigation on which it was based was altogether independent of that made by Pinkerton and entirely unknown to him. Colonel Stone, it will be remembered, was the officer to whom General Scott entrusted the organization and command of the district militia for the defense of Washington and the general supervision and control of the city. The detectives, three in number, were from New York and at the request of Colonel Stone, had been selected and placed on duty by Mr. Kennedy, Superintendent of Police of New York City. In both cases, similar observations had been made and similar conclusions arrived at. Warned thus of danger by concurrent evidence too grave to be disregarded and advised to avoid it, not only by Judd and Felton in Philadelphia, but now also by Mr. Seward, the chief of his new cabinet, and by General Scott, the chief of the army, Mr. Lincoln could no longer hesitate to adopt their suggestion. Whether the evidence would prove ultimately true, or whether a violence upon him would be attempted, was not the question. The existence of the danger was pointed out and certified by an authority he had no right to disregard. The trust he bore was not merely the personal safety of an individual, but the fortune and perhaps the fate of the government of the nation. It was his imperative duty to shun all possible and unnecessary peril. A man of less courage would have shrunk from what must inevitably appear to the public like a sign of timidity. But Lincoln on this and other occasions concerned himself only with the larger issues at stake, leaving minor and especially personal consequences to take care of themselves. Frederick W. Seward was therefore informed by Judd that he could say to his father that all had been arranged and that so far as human foresight could predict, Mr. Lincoln would be in Washington at six o'clock the next morning. With this message, Mr. Seward returned to Washington, while Mr. Lincoln and his suite proceeded to Harrisburg, where on that same Friday, the 22nd of February, he was officially received by the governor and the legislature of Pennsylvania. No other member of Mr. Lincoln's suite had as yet been notified of anything connected with the matter, 
But Mr. Judd had suggested to him that he felt exceedingly the responsibility of the advice he had given and the steps he had taken, and that he thought it due to the age and standing of the leading gentlemen of the President-elect's party that at least they should be informed and consulted. To the above suggestions, writes Judd, Mr. Lincoln assented, adding, I reckon they will laugh at us, Judd, but you'd better get them together. It was arranged that after the reception at the State House and before dinner, the matter should be fully laid before the following gentlemen of the party, Judge David Davis, Colonel E. V. Sumner, Major David Hunter, Captain John Pope, and Ward H. Lehman. Mr. Judd's narrative then further recites what occurred. The meeting thus arranged took place in the parlor of the hotel, Mr. Lincoln being present. The facts were laid before them by me, together with the details of the proposed plan of action. There was a diversity of opinion and some warm discussion, and I was subjected to a very rigid cross-examination. Judge Davis, who had expressed no opinion but contented himself with asking rather pointed questions, turned to Mr. Lincoln, who had been listening to the whole discussion, and said, Well, Mr. Lincoln, what is your own judgment upon this matter? Mr. Lincoln replied, I have thought over this matter considerably since I went over the ground with Pinkerton last night. The appearance of Mr. Frederick Seward with warning from another source confirms Mr. Pinkerton's belief. Unless there are some other reasons besides fear of ridicule, I am disposed to carry out Judd's plan. Judge Davis then said, That settles the matter, gentlemen. Colonel Sumner said, So be it, gentlemen. It is against my judgment, but I have undertaken to go to Washington with Mr. Lincoln, and I shall do it. I tried to convince him that any additional person added to the risk, but the spirit of the gallant old soldier was up, and debate was useless. The party separated about 4 p.m., the others to go to the dinner table, and myself to go to the railroad station and the telegraph office. At a quarter to six, I was back at the hotel, and Mr. Lincoln was still at the table. In a few moments, the carriage drove up to the side door of the hotel. Either Mr. Nicolay or Mr. Lehman called Mr. Lincoln from the table. He went to his room, changed his dinner dress for a traveling suit, and came down with a soft hat sticking in his pocket and his shawl on his arm. As the party passed through the hall, I said in a low tone, Layman, go ahead. As soon as Mr. Lincoln is in the carriage, drive off. The crowd must not be allowed to identify him. Mr. Layman went first to the carriage. Colonel Sumner was following close after Mr. Lincoln. I put my hand gently on his shoulder. He turned to see what was wanted, and before I could explain, the carriage was off. The situation was a little awkward, to use no stronger terms, for a few moments until I said to the colonel, when we get to Washington, Mr. Lincoln shall determine what apology is due to you. It is needless to describe the various stages of Mr. Lincoln's journey. The plan arranged by the railroad and telegraph officials was carried out to the smallest detail without delay or special incident and without coming to the knowledge of any person on the train or elsewhere except those to whom the secret was confided. 
The President-elect and his single companion were safely and comfortably carried from Harrisburg to Philadelphia, and at midnight took their berths in the sleeping car of the regular train from New York, passing through Baltimore, unrecognized and undisturbed, and arriving in Washington at six o'clock on the morning of February 23. Here they were met by Mr. Seward and E.B. Washburn, and conducted to Willard's Hotel. The family, Sweet, made the journey direct from Harrisburg to Baltimore, according to the program, arriving in Washington late that evening. They encountered in Baltimore no incivility, nor any unusual disorder, though, as elsewhere, dense crowds very inadequately controlled by the police surrounded the railroad depots and filled the streets through which their carriages passed. All motive, however, to commit an assault was now passed, since it was everywhere known that Mr. Lincoln was not with the party, but already at his destination. End of ch chapter 20